We're going to continue this morning our studies in the book of Revelation that we began last week. And uh, I suppose if we want some way to, uh, to remember this book, we could all growl and go, ah, and that would uh, give us some idea of the content of this, uh, this portion of, of the New Testament. This is a book that uh, I think has caused consternation for many. I was talking to someone this past week who said that they had tried a number of times to read through the book of Revelation, and they usually got hung up about the fifth or sixth chapter when they uh, began to encounter some of, the, uh, some of the symbols that they couldn't recognize or identify, and they gave up. That's, uh, that's unfortunate because, as I said last week, this is a part of uh, God's revelation to us, his people, and we need to understand this book and take it seriously. Even the name suggests that it's a book to be understood. It's called uh, A Revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, revelation means something that's revealed. Uh, this uh, particular book belongs to a style of literature that was, that was widely known and circulated widely in John's day called apocalyptic literature. And uh, that word is taken from the Greek word for revelation. It's something that reveals truth. What this book does is uh, lift the, uh, the veil so that we see beyond the things that we normally see. It reveals the forces, the spiritual forces that are at work beyond the seen and, and, and normally known. I, uh, I, I think of it as uh, a Punch and Judy, like a Punch and Judy show. Do you remember uh, those uh, puppets? Uh, there was always a villain who, uh, who lures away pretty Penelope and ties her to the uh, train track and everyone boos and hisses until the hero comes along with his big bow tie and he rescues uh, Penelope. Uh, suppose you were sitting in a Punch and Judy show and you got quite upset about the way the thing was going and you leaped to your feet and uh, began to beat on the, uh, the villain with a baseball bat. Well, the puppeteer would simply find another character and uh, he would put another villain on the stage, that's all. In order to put an end to the villain, you have to go around and back and wail on the uh, puppeteer. And that's what the book of Revelation teaches us to do. It teaches us how to engage in spiritual warfare. It shows us that there is a, there's a cosmic battle that's going on. And uh, it's not always known and seen. It's behind the scenes. And we need to learn something of the weaponry, the spiritual weaponry that God has placed at our disposal to be used. And uh, therefore not trust on the, the, in, in the puny armament of the flesh. Uh, try to resist uh, evil uh, with human effort. There is a better way, and the book of Revelation tells us how to wage spiritual battle in an effective way. Uh, Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, he says, take to yourself all of the weapons, the spiritual weapons in our, uh, in our panoply, in our assortment of, of weapons. And it's that sort of thing that Revelation teaches us to do. Now let's begin with chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to uh, now look at the letters which the risen Lord addresses to these seven churches in Asia Minor. We talked a bit about these churches last week. They're identified for us in chapter 1, verse 11. There were seven specific historical churches that were located along the great circular road that tied together most of the wealthy and influential cities of that time on the western end of Asia Minor, what uh, today is Turkey. These were historical cities. 
chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all part of a vision that John saw. He saw the glorified Lord. And then the Lord commands him to write a word of exhortation to all of these churches. And those uh, letters, or they're actually more like postcards, just brief notes, are found in chapters 2 and 3. We're going to look at the uh, first two of these this morning, the letter to the church in Ephesus and the letter to the church in Smyrna. Before we do, let me give you a little bit of historical background to these, uh, to these cities. Scripture is so far removed often from our thinking, we don't realize these were, these were real people, ordinary people, just like us. And uh, sometimes in rooting them in history, we get a little different perspective. Now, I know I have a tendency to go to seed on this sort of thing, so if you're not interested in it, you can tune me out. But stay with me for about five minutes, okay? Because I think it's, it's important. Uh, the Roman Empire had what, to our modern minds, was a very peculiar attitude toward religions. They really only saw two religions. One was the state religion, which was emperor worship, and then they put everything else in with the cults. So there was, there was a state religion and then there were cults. The demand made for emperor worship was absolute. That was the state religion. It was obligatory. But they didn't care how fanatical you were. You could be fanatical about any cult and only nominal about emperor worship, but emperor worship was obligatory. It began probably uh, as an outgrowth of, of a strong nationalistic spirit that uh, the Romans had. They wanted to protect the state, and they wanted citizens to be loyal to the state. And so they, because the emperor is the embodiment of the state, they put him forward as the god to be worshipped. And all you had to do was walk by his statue and genuflect and say, Caesar is Lord, and that's it. You didn't have to attend any services. You didn't have to be moral. You didn't have to do anything except occasionally walk by the statue of Caesar and say, Caesar's Lord. And uh, then you could be anything else you wanted to. Now, that worked very well. It was a unifying factor in the Roman Empire until they came to the Jews. The Jews were very stubborn in their resistance to this idea that you, you shall have no other gods before me, and they would not worship Caesar. Not one word. At first, the Roman Empire tried to... Uh, tried to force them to worship, but uh, they saw after a while the futility of, of that sort of action because the whole nation, they would have had to exterminate every Jew on the face of the earth. And so after a while, they accommodated themselves to the uh, stubbornness of the Jewish people, and they said, all right, as long as you offer sacrifices in Jerusalem to the emperor, then that's all you have to do. And since um, everything centered around the temple in, in Jerusalem, uh, Jews, in effect, were offering worship to Caesar when they offered up sacrifices on behalf of the, of the Caesar. So that's sort of the way they worked that out. And when they came to the Christians, they ran into the same problem. At first, the Romans thought Christians were just another Jewish sect, but the Jews were quick to point out after a while that that's not the case. And uh, uh, the Christians, like the Jews, simply refused to, uh, to worship Caesar, even in this nominal, half-hearted way. You see, the Romans didn't care how serious they were as long as they would, all they had to say was Caesar's Lord but the Christians wouldn't do it. At first, the Romans refused to uh, hound them down. But after a while, there was a movement among the pagan population to force them to worship Caesar. And that's when persecution began for real. It began with Nero in the middle of the first century, A.D., and it continued on depending upon who was the emperor and how seriously he took the idea of emperor worship. By the time you get to John in the book of Revelation, a man named Domitian was on the throne who thought that he really was God. 
In fact, that's the title that, that he, he gave to himself, Lord and God. And he took this whole thing very seriously. And he began an unremitting uh, persecution, a purge of the Roman Empire. He wanted to exterminate Christians. And things really got tough. People died by the thousands. We have no idea how many perished simply because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord, after all. There's only one Lord. And they died by the thousands. One of the men that we know about was the leader of the church in Smyrna. We're going to talk about Smyrna today. He was probably one of the uh, leaders in that church at the time John wrote this, uh, this letter. When he was 86 years old, he was dragged into the arena, and the governor of Smyrna compelled him to uh, offer sacrifice to Caesar. He was a highly regarded man. He was a dignified, elderly gentleman, much uh, loved in town. And, and even the Romans didn't want to put him to death. And they said, look, Polycarp, all you have to do is just give lip service to Caesar. Just say Caesar's Lord. It's all you have to say. And Polycarp drew himself up to his full height. And he says, 86 years he has served me and given me no reason to be ashamed of him. Why now should he be ashamed of me? And they burned him at the stake. Now, that's the kind of thing that was going on. That's the background in which these, uh, these letters are cast. And the point of all of it is how to live in a world like that, in, in, in secular society where our goals run contrary to the goals of everyone else. How shall we live? That's, that's the point of the book of Revelation. Now, let's look at the first uh, letter addressed to the church, the angel of the church in Ephesus. Uh, you'll notice in each case there is the same format. There is an introductory word addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus or the angel of the church in Smyrna. Uh, unfortunately, our word angel, our English word angel, is not a translation of the, of the Greek uh, word that's in, behind this term. It's a transliteration. In other words, they've just anglicized. They've made an English word out of the Greek word. The Greek word is angelos. And it doesn't always mean a superhuman being, an angel, as we think of it. The word basically means messenger, and that's all it means. Now, it may at times refer to, to an angel, as we know angels. At other times, it's simply a messenger. Here, I believe, it has the meaning of messenger. I think there were delegates that were sent down to Patmos. They copied off the scroll as this truth was revealed to John, and they went back to their respective cities and delivered this message. They are the delegates or the representatives of these various cities to whom the, the uh, letters are, uh, are addressed and through whom they're sent to the church. And you'll notice, uh, you can't tell from the English text, but the pronouns all the way through are singular so that in every case when a word is addressed to the church, it's actually addressed to the messenger. The idea being the messenger is the representative of the church. What Jesus says to the messenger, he says to the church. Okay? It, it, then after this introduction, there is a, an, an identification of the one who speaks, which in each case goes back to the vision. Some element of the vision is picked up and applied in an appropriate way to the church. And then there is a word of commendation, or in some cases condemnation, introduced by the word I know. And then there is a correction, if the church needs correction. And then, finally, a promise to the ones who overcome. Now, that's the uh, outline or format of each of these letters. Now, let's look at the first. To the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, this is the Lord commanding John, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, 
He says this. Two things that he wants them to remember from the vision. First, he's the one who holds the churches. He holds the stars, and we know the stars represent the messengers, and the messengers represent the church. So the obvious implication is this is the one who holds fast the church. He uses a different term here than he uses in the vision to refer to the one who holds the stars because the point he wants to make is that this is one who holds them firmly. No one's going to be lost. He's a sovereign Lord. He's in control. So there is security. But not only is there security, he is also the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, so there is scrutiny. The seven lampstands represent the churches, as we know. Each lampstand was an individual church. And in the vision, we saw the Lord in the midst of the seven lampstands. So here, he not only is holding the churches securely, but he is scrutinizing the churches. He sees beyond the obvious. And I suppose the question that we would want to ask is this. If the Lord were to walk into this body of believers on Sunday morning or walk among us as we're scattered throughout the city of Boise, what would he see? What would he know? Uh, sometimes what, is, what seems to be is not what is at all because the Lord looks beyond the obvious to the heart. I went in a couple of weeks ago to talk to my doctor because I was fitting a little subpar and, and uh, he put me in all these wonderful machines that go beep, beep and flashing lights and, and uh, probed and poked and pushed and took my temperature and looked in my eyes and ears. And, and then a little while later he came back and he said, Aha! I have found it. And he was able to pinpoint the problem. It wasn't obvious by looking at me. I looked perfectly healthy. But I knew something was wrong. And it took someone who could know me through and through to understand what was wrong. And that's the picture that we have of the Lord here, walking among his people, scrutinizing our lives, investigating what we're doing, assessing our attitudes as well as our, our actions, and then giving us an analysis of what he, what he thinks about us. That's what he's doing to this church in, in Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. First of all, he says, I know your deeds. Uh, this was an active, aggressive church. They had a large children's ministry. They were running buses all over the city of Ephesus. And a large Monday night uh, prayer meet, Wednesday night prayer meeting, and uh, women's Bible studies, and a Wednesday morning men's Bible study, and they were running uh, evangelism classes and growth groups, and all sorts of things were going on. This was a church that had a very rich uh, tradition of teaching. Paul came through Ephesus uh, on his second missionary journey, and he was there for a while and left Apollos in this great intellectual giant from Alexandria. Um, Apollos taught for a while. And then Paul came back through on his third missionary journey, and he taught them for two and a half years or so, and left Timothy behind. And uh, then he wrote uh, letters both to the church in Ephesus and to Timothy. First and Second Timothy were both written to this young man while he was ministering in Ephesus. And then later, when Timothy went over to Rome to be with Paul, John moved over to Ephesus, and that was the center of his ministry from about 63 on. And for about 30 years, the Apostle John taught these people. It would be like having uh, 
Chuck Swindoll and Dr. Jack Mitchell and Billy Graham and R.C. Sproul and, and uh, John MacArthur and, and all the Bible teachers that we, that we listened to working in, in one church and teaching these people. They were known as a center for biblical instruction. And furthermore, he says, you're working hard, you're toiling hard, and you're persevering. You haven't broken down and given up. And you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. In other words, when false teachers came to town, they, uh, they brought out the writings of the apostles and they evaluated what they had to say by the teaching of the apostles. They didn't go on anyone's experience or a vision that they had. They checked everything out by Scripture. That's something Paul had, uh, had warned them about, the, the uh, incursion of false teaching when he was there uh, on his way back to Jerusalem. In Acts 20, he gathers the elders together and he says, Now look, the time is coming when there are going to be wolves that will come into the group and tear the flock and there will be wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing from inside who will begin to lead people away. Remember, for two, for two years, I didn't stop exhorting you. In other words, uh, use the exhortation that I gave you to test these men. And uh, they, they were faithful in teaching the Scriptures and in testing everyone by the Word of God. That's a good word. And we need to remind ourselves of the need to test everything by Scripture. It doesn't make any difference how popular a person is, how large their following is, how much uh, money they raise on television, or how widely acclaimed they are. Everyone needs to be tested by Scripture. That's, our, that's the basis of our authority, you see. And this was a church that was doing that, and uh, John commends them for it. But, he says in verse 4, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. He could have said, you don't love each other the way you used to. And that's his point. And what he's doing, I think, is bringing to mind what is a problem that's just endemic in, in evangelical Bible teaching churches, is lovelessness. We get all of our theological ducks in a row, and we have uh, all of our theology sorted out, and we've got our eschatological charts worked out to the very end. We know exactly what everything means. But we don't love each other. And uh, unfortunately, the world knows it. And you know, they're not at all impressed by our orthodoxy. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not denigrating the, the idea of orthodoxy. We need to be true to Scripture. He commends them for the fact that they're true to Scripture. But the problem is they just didn't love each other. I read an interview uh, this last week with Juan Carlos Ortiz. Ortiz some of you know uh, who he is. He was the pastor of the largest Assemblies of God church in Latin America. Had a, just a tremendous ministry there. And uh, someone asked him about the uh, growth of his church, and he uh, said, well, he said, I'm not sure that we grew. He said, we, at first we had 200 unloving people. And then we had 400 unloving people. And then we had 1,000 unloving people. And he says, now that I think back on it, I don't think we grew. I think we just got fat. And that really struck home to me because the real test is not how large we're getting or how many programs we have going or how big our budget is. The real test is our love for one another. Do we really care about each other? That's what makes an impact upon the world. Um, <laughs> I want to read a, a newspaper article. You won't believe this, but this actually happened. It's from the Mount Clemens Times. 
Police canceled a Sunday worship service after fighting broke out in the congregation over who should be pastor. And then they named the name of the church. Five Mount Clemens police officers and Macomb County Sheriff's deputies were called to break up the disturbance. During the service, two rival ministers, the Reverend Nathaniel Calhoun and Reverend Clarenton Bullock, stood in the pulpit using separate microphones. <laughs> While Calhoun led his group of church members in the reading of Psalm 122, Bullock and his followers tried to outshout them with a reading of Psalm 92. This actually happened. Under an agreement negotiated between the factions, each group's minister was supposed to preach on alternate Sundays. It was Bullock's turn. But Calhoun told the congregation he was claiming the pulpit because I was elected your pastor and I'm going to preach. Alexander Minor, Jr., 21, of Mount Clemens, told police that Rose Nelson walked up to his pew and grabbed his face with her hand before the service began. Minor said he tried to free himself from her grasp, but Erskine Nelson, the woman's son, hit him over the head. Minor said he supports Calhoun. Mrs. Nelson declined to comment. Shouts and threats interrupted the service until Sergeant B.A. Campaw of the Mount Clemens Police Department walked up the aisle and told the congregation to go home. Now, that's uh, bizarre and extreme, but it happened, and I suppose it could happen anywhere. And the word to us is that we just need to love each other and really care about each other in practical ways. We need to be true to the truth. But unity does not mean that we agree on everything. There are a lot of Christians in this community that we may not agree with on some elements, so the way they baptize or their church order or um, uh, their views of sanctification, but uh, they're brothers, and we agree about the things that really matter. And uh, if they're brothers, then we need to love them. And we need to love each other. And when people come into this service, you know, they, they, they need to sense the fact that somebody around here cares for them that we love them in, in practical ways. Uh, I was raised in Dallas, and uh, I used to go to Schofield Memorial Church there. And as a boy growing up, I, uh, I was impressed by a plaque on the back of the auditorium that listed the names of all of the men that had been killed in the Second World War. They were there in Goldleaf, members of that congregation. And my father told me a story one time about a, a little boy who looked up at that plaque and he asked his father what that was. And his father said, well, son, those are the people that died in the service. And his, his question was, which service, Dad, the morning service or the evening service? <clears throat> and when I thought of that story this week, I wondered how many people have died in our service. Really? Now... I'm not an anti-Semitist at all. I love the Jewish people. But uh, down through history, they have been responsible at times for persecuting Christians or seeing to it that Christians are persecuted as much as Gentiles have. Both have been equally guilty. In this case, the Jews had stirred up the Roman populace against the, uh, the Christians. And they were inflicting a great deal of harm. This was a, this was a suffering church. So the word goes out to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. This is the one who became dead and then sprang to life. He beat death. He's the only one to do that. And this is a good word for a church that will shortly face death. I know your tribulation, he says. The word means pressure. 
Our word tribulation comes from a Latin word for whip, but the Greek word means pressure. It's used of a process of making wine, crushing grapes, and crushing grain under a mill wheel. It speaks of grinding, unremitting pressure. Uh, the Roman Empire never let up on these, these Christians in Smyrna. It was one illegal and unjust act after, after another. And these people were experiencing tremendous suffering. But uh, the Lord says with infinite tenderness, I know, I know. And the Lord knows your pressure just as he knew theirs. And your poverty, but he says you are rich. These were people that uh, couldn't get jobs because they wouldn't join the trade unions. The trade unions were characterized by uh, immorality. They'd get together on the weekends and, and it'd just be one drunken brawl after another and it'd usually end up as sexual orgies and, and the Christians just uh, didn't get involved and therefore they couldn't be a member of a union and therefore they couldn't get work. And many of them were poverty-stricken. Uh, their businesses were boycotted. They lost their uh, tenured positions in the schools. They were thrown out of the universities. They were thrown out of their homes. Things were really tough. And they, they, they literally were poor. He's not talking about spiritual poverty here, but just lack of funds. They just didn't have any money. The word that, that the Lord uses here is a word that means beggarly. They just they didn't have anything. They were destitute. But, he says, you're rich. Isn't that interesting? You're poor in things, but that's all right because things don't satisfy. Anyway, the more things you have, the more things you want. That's a bottomless pit. You just want more and more. But in the things that really satisfy, that is the resources of God himself, you're rich. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. And Paul uses the same terms that, that the Lord uses here for rich and, and poor. So uh, we're rich in the character of God. We're rich in the resources that God gives us, just as these poor folks in, in Smyrna were. And then he says, I know you're the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That is, they've taken the side of the adversary. The word Satan simply means adversary. They become enemies of God's plan to bring salvation to the earth rather than the ones through whom that salvation is mediated. And they are blaspheming you. This is an interesting use of that term because normally in the, Old, in the New Testament this is used for those who speak against God, but here it's those who speak against the Christians. You know what they were saying? We know from the writings of Ignatius, who wrote shortly after John, that they were accusing the Christians of three things of incest because uh, they talked about one another as brother and sister and how much they loved each other and cannibalism because they talked about drinking the blood and eating the, the body of, of Jesus and of orgiastic worship because they had a love feast and they couldn't envision anything other than the love feast they had which were just given the physical expressions of, of love and so they were they were slandering and maligning and blaspheming uh, the, the Christians. And this brought them to the attention of, of the Roman officials. They were dragged before the Roman tribunals and were taken to the amp amphitheater to feed the bloodlust of, of, the, of the people and uh, uh, killed by wild animals and burned at the stake. But um, 
He says in verses 10 and 11 two things to them. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. In those days, they didn't merely incarcerate people, put them in prison for a period of time. The only people who went to prison are people who were waiting to die. So uh, he's referring to a death sentence. The devil is going to cast you, some of you, into prison to die. And here again is a peek behind the scenes. It's not the Roman Empire. It's the old dragon. It's the devil who's doing this. And you'll be tested with a view to approval. And you'll have pressure, 10 days, that's a finite number. It won't go on forever. God's in control. He has a plan. It's all according to his plan. Be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Just these two words, don't fear, and be faithful unto death. And you notice he doesn't give them any false hope. He doesn't say it's going to get better. The suffering will be alleviated. He speaks very realistically about the fact that they're going to continue to suffer. They've suffered in the past, and that past, and now he says the payoff is, is more suffering. And we need once for all to get out of our mind this idea that when we come to Christ, he's going to meet every one of our physical needs, material needs. We'll always have a job. We'll always have money. We'll always have good health. Our children will always perform the right way. Our marriages will flourish. They may not. All sorts of things may happen. Our whole life may break down. But what God promises is, is that if we're faithful, then he'll take us through. That's all. The payoff for faithfulness is more suffering. But he'll take us through, you see. That's the, that's the realistic hope that we have. And then in verse 11, he says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death is spiritual death. It's described later on in Revelation as the lake of fire, the final death for the dragon and all of those that are aligned with, with him. And his point is, death won't hurt you. Again, you have to die for something someday. You might as well die for something worthwhile. So just be faithful to the Lord to the point of death. And if you die, so what? What's the big deal? They can't hurt you. It says, Jesus said, uh, in, as Luke records it, he says, look, they're going to hound you and harass you and persecute you and they'll kill you, but they won't be able to harm a hair of your head. That doesn't make any difference, you see. You be faithful. And the reason we can be faithful is because he's faithful. He's faithful to us. In other words, keep depending on him, trusting him, believe him. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Go on acting according to the truth. Love one another. Live out the life of God in the world, no matter what the pressure is. And he says, he who is faithful will not be hurt of the second death. A couple of years ago, I picked up a letter from a missionary out in New Guinea who was writing home to some of his supporters, sharing with them some of the struggles that he was going through. And this is what he wrote. Man, he says, it's great to be in the thick of things and to draw the old devil's heaviest guns, to have him at you with depression and discouragement, slander and disease. He doesn't waste time on a lukewarm bunch. He hits good and hard when a fellow is hitting him. You can always measure the weight of your blow by the one you get back. When you're on your back with fever and at your last ounce of strength, when some of your converts backslide, when you learn that your most promising inquirers are fooling,
When your mail gets held up and some don't bother to answer your letters, is that time to put on mourning? No, sir. That's the time to pull out the stops and shout hallelujah. The old fellow's getting it in the neck and hitting back. Heaven is leaning over the battlements and watching. Will he stick it? And as they see who is with us, as they see the unlimited reserves, the boundless resources, as they see the impossibility of failure, how sad they must be when we run away. Glory to God, we're not going to run away. And that's what it means to overcome. Let's stand together, shall we? Gracious Father, you know our hearts and you know our desire sometimes to run away, to run back into the old life, or simply to give up and give way to depression and discouragement and to feel that there's nothing really worthwhile uh, to do. But uh, we thank you for this, this mighty prospect that's open to us, to know that we're part of, of your great plan to bring salvation to the world, and that we can, by loving one another and by enduring under pressure, be part of, of your program to, be, to bring men and women into a loving relationship with you. And we want to be part of that. Thank you for your courage and stamina, boldness. It's given to us uh, freely, there to lay hold of. Teach us increasingly to know what we have and to act upon it. Make us, as your people, a loving, gracious, and godly people. Wherever we go this week, living out of our lives the, the infinite life of our Lord Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name.